welcome to theories of the third kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts. There's another host that's joining me today, Danielson. Ayo. Now, real quick, before we start today's episode, I just want to say that if you would like to support the show, then there's a few ways that you could do that. One of the ways is Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only 16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. In total, we have over 88 extra Patreon episodes, which is over 123 extra hours of listening pleasure. Now, to see this full list of Patreon episodes, you can go to our website, which is theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and you can click on our Patreon episodes tab. There, you will see the entire list of Patreon-exclusive episodes that we have published. Also, today we added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is over the Betts Mystery Sphere, which is a story about a family who found a mysterious, strange sphere that exhibited strange supernatural abilities and would get studied by scientists, doctors, and even the United States military. So you get access to that episode, as well as all of the others, for just $5. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes or you can leave one on Spotify, which, by the way, Spotify just started allowing podcasts to be rated. You can go on there, listen to 30 seconds of any episode, and then it will allow you to rate the podcast. However, don't feel pressure to leave us one if you don't want to. That's totally fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are to enjoy the show. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is over the Antikythera mechanism. So how this episode will go today is that we'll talk about where this mechanism was found, who created it, the strange facts and findings surrounding it, the theories, and of course, Wrap it all up with our own personal thoughts and theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. More than a hundred years ago, an extraordinary device that was thousands of years old was found at the bottom of the sea. This device left the entire scientific community baffled for numerous decades as to what it could be. Some stated that it was an astronomical clock, while others said that it was a 2,000-year-old computer, or even an alien artifact. Regardless of what it was exactly, this device that was thousands of years old changed our understanding of human history. This is the Antikythera Mechanism. All right, so the first thing we need to talk about is the history behind this device. And by the way, when we dove into the history, we dove extremely deep. And I guarantee you, 
you will find no other podcast that's going to dive as deep as we did into the finding of this device. Because I, I mean, I dove into some newspaper articles from the 1900s and pulled those and read them and had them translated from Greek to English. Oh, shit. I went super deep in on this. So you're going to get exclusive, exclusive, exclusive. I'm going to get exclusive, exclusive, exclusive. <laughs> All right. So, Dan, can you start us off and tell us about the entire device and how it was found? Of course. Now, to understand where this device came from and what it does, we need to discuss how it was found. So this all began in the spring of the year 1900, right before Easter Sunday. An individual named Captain Demetrius Kantos and his crew of six divers and 20 oarsmen were on a journey sailing towards their final destination off the coast of North Africa, where they would spend their summer gathering sponges off the sea floor, which is how they earn their living. Now, real quick, if you don't know what sponge diving is, it's the oldest form of underwater diving, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Divers go underwater and they gather up sponges. Now, these sponges have been used for hundreds of years for multiple things, such as paddings for the insides of helmets. Uh, they've been used for portable drinking utensils. You know, they soak them with water and squeeze the water out of them. And they were even used as water filters. So they have multiple uses. And another little fact to add to that, but back in the day, when a crew would go out sponge diving, it was pretty extreme. Wasn't that safe? Like, for example, they would take a small boat into the Mediterranean Sea, and then they would use a cylindrical object with a glass bottom and look into that to be able to see the ocean floor and spot these sponges. Yeah, so they would take the object, they would lean over the boat, and they would place that cylindrical object halfway into the water and halfway out of the water. And then they would look into it, so it would act as like a... Underwater telescope? An underwater telescope, exactly, so they could see the bottom floor. That's interesting. Now, once they spotted these sponges, a diver on the boat would jump into the water, usually butt-ass naked, with a 33-pound rounded stone tied to a rope, which was tied to a boat. So the diver would hold on to that rope while the stone sank to the bottom, and it would quickly take that diver to the bottom of the seafloor. The diver would then cut the sponges loose from the bottom of the ocean floor and put a special net around them. Now get this, these divers would usually go down as far as 100 feet, and they would stay there for up to five minutes, cutting sponges loose and collecting them. And just an FYI, there's no way I can hold my breath for five minutes. Hell no. I think the longest I can do is maybe two and a half. That's pushing it, though. I think I can do a max of maybe a minute and a half. Last time I've tried, and that was a long time ago. Yeah, but five minutes, that is insane. Pretty impressive. Yeah, so there you go. There's some uh, sponge diving knowledge nuggets for you. I don't know why. I was just thinking maybe they're not actually holding their breath five minutes. They're just down there five minutes. Another rope's tied to them, so after five minutes, they pull them up and probably <laughs> resuscitate them. <laughs> that would be even more extreme. Yeah, because, I mean, they're using a rock to go down pretty quick. Yeah. So back to the story. So this Captain Demetrius and his crew were sailing along towards the coast of North Africa. However, before they could make it there, they ran into some pretty bad weather, and they had to spend a few days on this small Greek island of Antikythera. Now, this Antikythera, 
is a small island right off the coast of Greece. The island itself is surrounded with sharp rocks that barely stick out of the top of the water. So it's a super dangerous area for boats to sail near. And you want to keep that in mind as we go forward with the story, because it kind of plays a role into what happens. So as the days passed, the captain and his crew continued to grow more and more impatient, waiting for the weather to get better so that they could leave. Eventually, they figured, what the heck? Let's try to do some diving off the coast of this island and see if there are any sponges we can gather here. They gathered their equipment and sailed a short distance off the coastline and started searching for these sponges. And it didn't take the crew long before they spotted a patch of them. So the first diver to enter the water was Elias Stadiatis, who dove down 60 meters to the ocean floor to recover these sponges. However, five minutes later, he reappeared on the surface, empty-handed and kind of like agitated, but a little spooked at the same time. Like he was kind of upset, but also scared. The captain was like, Elias. Where the hell are the sponges? And Elias said, those are not sponges down there. It's a huge mound of corpses, dead men, women, and horses, all lying on the ocean floor. Now, there isn't a ship, but there must have been a wreck. Now, if I was the captain of a boat and somebody said that to me, my ass would not go down there and see. I would take his word for it. Would you? I'd take his word for it. I wouldn't be going down there. I wouldn't go down there either. But the captain... He was actually a master diver, and he said, you know what, I'm going to go down there and look for myself. And that's what he did. He stripped down, and he hopped into the water and dove down. And what he discovered was that these supposed corpses were not corpses at all, but instead they were statues that had been corroded and were encrusted with marine sediment. Some of these statues were made out of marble and others had a green tint of bronze to them. The captain quickly realized that his crew had discovered a treasure. So he decided to grab a bronze arm from one of the statues as proof and head back to the surface to show his crew. Now what happened next is kind of disputed. So there's two believed stories here. One story is that the captain recorded the location of his find and then sailed back home. Now, the news of him finding this treasure spread around his town and kind of made him into like a local hero. The captain then sought some advice from some local elders in which they advised him to immediately report the discovery to the Greek government in Athens. That's the first story. Dan, tell us the second story. All right. Now, some believe what happened was that the captain and his crew retrieved as much of the treasure as their boats could possibly carry, leaving some of the treasure behind in the ocean still. They took the treasure that they retrieved to the markets in Egypt where they were sold. After that, the crew then notified the Greek government of their findings in hope of a reward. So now, regardless of what happened, we do know for sure that on November 6th, 1900, the captain went to Athens with that bronze arm that he pulled up, that he initially pulled up, you know, and, and showed his men. He went to Athens with that bronze arm as kind of like proof and reported his discovery to the authorities there. So the following day, the captain sent a letter to the General of Antiquities in Greece. That letter stated, hey, 
I found some treasure. It's located here. Can I have permission to salvage this treasure and the cargo? And, oh, hey, by the way, since I found it, how big of a reward am I going to get? <laughs> so he's kind of like, look, I found treasure. How much are you going to give me for finding it? The following day, the minister informed the captain that the government of Greece's intention was to contribute to the effort of recovering the treasure of the wreck and that the reward to him would indeed be generous. The captain and the Greek government came to the agreement that he and his divers would be salvaging the cargo and retrieving the treasures and that they would provide support. The Greek Navy sent a ship off the coastline for support, and on November 24, 1900, the operations began. By Christmas of that year, which was a little less than a month later, they had already retrieved multiple ancient artifacts, including a bronze head of a bearded man, the bronze arm of a boxer, two bronze swords, marble statues of men and horses, a colossal bowl made of pure marble, and bronze furniture. And have you seen these statues that they recovered, Dan? I have not. We're going to link up pictures on our website, so you can go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, click on references, scroll all the way down to episode 118, Antikythera Mechanism, and there the images will be at. Four of them to be exact. But if you want to see more, you can just go on DuckDuckGo and just type in Antikythera Mechanism Ancient Artifacts Found in Shipwreck. And you can go and they have a gallery that you can see all the rest of them. But the four that I provided, you can see the bronze one of the guy's feet, hands, and his face, and then like the kind of like the cape draped over him. Of course, they don't have the body of him. Would that be the bronze arm? I believe so, yes. And then the next one is the statue of the marble boy. Oh, that's freaky looking. You can see that half of this statue was buried and the other half was exposed to the elements. And that's what happened to the marble for thousands of years being exposed to the elements. But can you imagine that long? Okay. Now, right now in the story, we don't know how old these artifacts are. All we know so far is that it's the year 1900 and they have found these artifacts. Spoiler alert, these are thousands of years old. Now, can you imagine thousands of years ago making them? Hell, I couldn't even make them right now. Dude, look how smooth it is. They polished the shit out of that. Yeah, and you want to see something else crazy? Look at the next photo of the details of the bronze face. The eyes, holy shit. The eyes are kind of scary, aren't they? Look at the details in the hair, in the face. Yeah. And then the next one is the full body of the man. And they were even generous enough to include the penis and testicles in that statue. How polite of them. See, the water was cold. <laughs> it must have been cold, yeah. Actually, back then, it was considered awesome to have a small penis, by the way. So there you go. little knowledge nugget for you. Where's my Montauk chair? <laughs> All right. So there you go. There's some statues that they found. There's a lot more. You can just, like I said, go to DuckDuckGo and look them up. All right. So, continue on. So, these artifacts were immediately stored in a small storage room on the island of Antikythera. They were then taken back to Athens, where they were guarded by the police and then transported to the National Archaeological Museum. Now, when they put them in this storage room on the island of Antikythera, they put little number tags on all of the stuff that they found to keep track of it. And then, 
every so often they would take a shipment of these artifacts back to Athens to this National Archaeological Museum. And they had a storage room in that museum to keep them at to kind of like start restoration efforts. But they didn't transport them all at once because they were finding so many of these artifacts. They had to constantly have this like rotation of shipment containers picking them up and then shipping them back to Athens. And the crew continued to retrieve like multiple artifacts. However, as time progressed, the entire operation was getting tougher by the day. The pace of the discovery was slowing down due to all the stuff that they had initially found and recovered was just sitting on top of the ocean floor. For an example, the marble statue of the kid, his hand was sticking out, stuff like that, like it was half buried or sitting right on top, and it was easily retrievable. However, there was still a lot more treasure to be found, but it was all buried underneath these gigantic boulders, which they had to remove to get to this treasure. Eventually, after moving the boulders, they came across a huge marble statue of Hercules, in which he had lion skin and his club in one of his hands, along with a bronze device that, when retrieved, broke into three bronze fragments. Yeah, so it was initially one bronze device as a whole, and when they started bringing it up out of the water, it broke into three pieces. Ooh. And they were like, God damn it. <laughs> damn it, there goes millions of dollars. Now, these types of treasures continue to be found, and then eventually on October 18th, 1901, the government of Greece decided to cease all recovery operations and instead focus their attention on the treasures that they had already found. And still, even to this day, there's still treasures buried down in there. And the big-ass boulders are still there. They still have a lot more boulders. And how they were initially removing them in the 1900s is that they would dig a tunnel in the sand underneath the boulders all the way out on the other side. And then they would take a rope and swim that rope through that tunnel and then pull that rope tight to loosen the boulder and make it fall down the cliff because there was a gigantic cliff there that just kind of dropped off into nothing. And that's where the boulders would roll to. So it was extremely dangerous and it still is there. So after all these artifacts were brought back to the National Museum, they started doing conservation and reconstruction efforts on them. Now, a lot of these finds were all over the place when it came to like their quality. For an example, the marble statues and objects were either in perfect condition or in absolute terrible shit condition. And this all depended on whether they were buried in the sand or not. Kind of like how we talked about earlier about that one statue. Half of it was buried and the other half wasn't. And the half that was buried was in perfect condition. The half that wasn't looks like the damn statue was burned alive. That's exactly what it looks like. And like we said, the marble sections that weren't buried in the sand were severely eroded. Now, the bronze objects and statues, almost all of them were in bad, horrible condition. So how the museum decided to restore the bronze objects? By placing all of them in clean spring water every two days. Then both the bronze and the marble artifacts received chemical treatment and then cleaned mechanically with chisels. The museum mainly focused on restoring the big statues of the people, thinking that they were the most important. However, little did they know that the most important find of that entire recovery was sitting there in that storage room in three small pieces, and no one paid 
any attention to it. So on May 20th, 1902, the Minister of Affairs of Athens, Greece, visited the museum and went into one of the storage rooms where the artifacts were being held. The minister saw three bronze fragments sitting near each other and decided to take a look at them. After closely examining one of them, he noticed that it had a dented edge, and on that edge, he could clearly see a gear. Now, after this, the minister got the other two fragments and placed them together and noticed that another entire gear was visible, as well as an inscription, which he could not decipher at the time. Many scholars and archaeologists were brought in to look at this device, which was called the Antikythera Mechanism. What they had discovered was that it was some type of mechanism with a set of rusted brass gears all placed inside of a wooden box. To these archaeologists, it was immediately apparent that the mechanism was some sort of clock, calendar, or some type of calculating device, but they had no idea what it was used for, or if it was even that exactly. And for that reason, it just sat there in the museum for decades, no one really knowing for sure what this device was, and really only kind of speculating as to what it could be. And we do have a couple pictures here, and this is just one of the pieces of the device. And you can clearly see that it has that gear, and you can see multiple other gears. So if you want to take a look at that picture, just like I stated, go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, click on references, scroll all the way down to the bottom, and you can see the device. All right. So like we said, for decades, no one really knew what this device was. I mean... They kind of guessed, but even then they weren't 100% sure and didn't really have any scientific data to back up their theories. So we fast forward to 1959. A Princeton science historian named Derek J. DeSala Price ended up studying the Antikythera mechanism. The Princeton science historian stated that the mechanism is like a great astronomical clock or like a modern analog computer which uses mechanical parts to save tedious calculations. Essentially, this device was used to predict the position of the planets and stars in the sky, depending on the calendar month. It had a main gear that would move to represent the calendar year and would, in turn, move many separate smaller gears to represent the motions of the planets, sun, and moon. So you could set the main gear to the calendar date and get approximations for where those stars and planets in the sky would be at on that specific date. Now, this device was created with advanced mathematical calculations and having understandings of the planets and stars and where they were located. And the science historian that was studying it knew that mechanical calculators that used gear ratios to kind of like add and subtract, just the basic-ass ones, they weren't even in Europe until the 1600s. However, this device right here was a lot older than that, possibly thousands of years older. And it did way more than just basic-ass subtraction and addition calculations. This thing, like we said, calculated planets, stars, everything. You just set it to a date, crank the dial on the side, and the damn thing could tell you everything. So this raised a ton of more questions as to what the hell is this? Yeah, 
And since then, technology has advanced and the scientific community has continued to look into this device. Modern x-rays and 3D mapping technology have allowed scientists to further their research into studying this device and how it functioned. And uh, we got an image of one of the x-rays here of the device. And you can go to our uh, references tab on our website to take a look at that. And you can clearly see that there are a ton of gears located inside of this machine. Oh, yeah, there are a ton. And you can see all the little teeth on them and everything. Yeah, it's amazing. So through these new technologies, it was revealed that this device also had text located on the inside of it, which was sort of like an instruction manual that was inscribed on parts of it that have never been seen before. Now, these inscriptions were in actually ancient Greek, and when deciphered, it explained how the device operated, which, side note, that Princeton science historian was pretty much right in his statement in the 70s about how this thing worked. The instruction manual that was on the inside of it, he hit it right on the head. Everything he said, 100% right. So the device had several dials and clock faces, each which served a different function for measuring movements of the sun, moon, stars, and planets, but they were all operated by one main crank. Little stone or glass orbs would have moved across the front of the machine to show the motion of the planets Mercury, Venus, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter in the sky. Now, not only that, but it also showed the position of the sun and the moon relative to the 12 constellations of the zodiac. And then it had another dial on it that forecasted the solar and lunar eclipses. And there was also a solar calendar charting the 365 days of the year, a lunar calendar counting a 19-year lunar cycle, a tiny pearl-sized ball that rotated to show you the phase of the moon, and another dial that counted down the days to the regularly scheduled sporting events such as the Olympics, around the Greek Isles. So I do have a short video that you can take a look at that will show you how this thing functioned. We're going to take a quick listen to it, and it's a lady basically explaining again, like we just said, how this thing works, but it gives you like a visual aspect of it. And I suggest everyone to go watch this video and see how this device worked. And keep in mind, this was made thousands of years ago. Housed in a rectangular frame, the machine shows data on both sides. In front is the larger dial, showing the 365 days of the year according to the Egyptian solar calendar. Inside, a second circle shows the 12 signs of the zodiac. By turning a handle, one could position the two hands to indicate, for each day of the year, the exact position of the sun and moon and a small sphere indicating the phase of the moon. In order to guarantee its exactitude, whatever the day or year chosen, a dial on the back of the mechanism shows the metonic cycle, which reflects lunar and solar cycles over a period of 19 years, corresponding to 235 lunar months. Above this, another spiral dial indicates eclipses of the sun and moon. The handle was used to advance the pointer to determine when the next eclipse would occur in the Saros cycle. As these operations were connected by the interlocking gears, the actual date of the eclipse showed on the other dial. 
How did the Greeks manage to devise a mechanism to reflect such complex and irregular data as the lunar cycles? The question also intrigues today's specialists in fine watchmaking. Matthias Butte, Director of Research and Development at Hublot, decided to reproduce these ancient forgotten calculations and integrate them into a modern watch. I didn't want to be like a tomb robber who comes to steal an idea, an idea which has existed for a long time, but rather like someone who approaches our forefathers with deep respect, whose goal is to recreate the antique object in a contemporary form. The original is about 20 centimeters high, and we have been able to recreate a 30 millimeter movement which can easily be worn on a wrist. This anti-Kathira mechanism includes ingenious features which are not found in modern watchmaking. So what do you think of that? That's very uh, intricate. Hell yeah, it is. Just thinking back, like way back then, them making the little, uh, what, cogwheels? All those little teeth on them? How difficult that must have been. Oh yeah. Or maybe our understanding of history is completely wrong, but we'll save that for theories. Yeah, so needless to say, the mechanics behind this device were insanely complicated. Now, the most shocking revelation behind all of this was that this device was actually dated from 190 to 120 BC, which kind of blew everyone away because nothing this sophisticated and complex was known to exist back then. So it really stunned the scientific community when they found out how truly old this device was. To this day, researchers aren't 100% sure who made it, just the time period of when it was made. They aren't sure exactly who used the device and only speculate that maybe scientists back then built it to either aid them in their calculations or used it as a teaching tool to show students that mathematical algorithms held the cosmos together. Also. How this device was made and assembled remains another mystery. How were the ancient people able to accomplish this feat is unknown to this day. Since its discovery, the Antikythera mechanism has been kept within the National Archaeological Museum collections in Athens. Its three main fragments were on display at the bronze collection until April 2013. And that is the history of the Antikythera mechanism. Just like every week, this is not the end of it, because now we are going to get into the juicy stuff, strange facts and findings that we uncovered while looking into this. However, before we get into that, real quick, we're going to take a quick 60-second break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. So, Dan, can you start us off and tell us about our first strange fact and finding? Of course. Now. Our first strange fact and finding revolves around some ancient texts from the writer Suetonius. So, Suetonius wrote about an inventor in the year 70 AD who went in front of a Roman emperor and showed him his invention of a machine that could move columns. This device would help assist the country in building things. However, that Roman emperor completely dismissed the inventor and told him that such labor-saving devices would cause the poor to starve by robbing them of employment. Do you think today that the government has some type of devices or something that they're holding back, let's say free energy devices, that they say if you release this to the public, you would end up collapsing the economy 
and thousands or millions of people would lose jobs and starve because of it. 100%. Oh, yeah. I guarantee it, too. But we'll save those conversations for theories. So that strange fact and finding there got us looking into inventions that were supposedly or maybe created in that time period that the Antikythera mechanism is supposedly from, that it was dated back to. And we found some interesting stuff. So get this. Hero of Alexandria was a Greek mathematician and engineer who was active in Alexandria, Roman Egypt between the years 10 AD and 70 AD. So some of the writings of his, of his inventions and designs, were found. Now we have some examples. One of his inventions was a vending type machine where you put a coin into a slot at the top of a machine and a set amount of holy water <laughs> was dispensed. That, that's pretty good. I mean, yeah, it, it would be useful for churches, right? You go and you yeah. pay for your holy water. Stuff like that. That's, that's genius. Now, Hero of Alexandria also invented a wind wheel operating an organ, making the first instance in history of wind powering a machine. Now, he also invented many things for the Greek theater, including an entire mechanical play, almost 10 minutes in length, powered by a binary-like system of ropes, knots, and simple machines operated by a rotating cylindrical cogwheel. It even had the sound of thunder in it, which was produced by the mechanically timed dropping of metal balls onto a hidden drum. How smart is that? Pretty smart for that time. Hell yeah. Imagine going to that play. And it's all automated. You're like, whoa, how does he do this? I'm surprised they didn't call him a witch and kill him. That's what I was thinking. Which they might have. I don't know. I don't know anything about that history and time. They might have done that to him. I'd have to look it up. I, I don't know. All right. So our next strange fact and finding revolves around one of the features of the Antikythera mechanism. Now, I know we mentioned earlier that this device was able to predict the sun and moon eclipses, right? But get this. It also had the ability to predict those eclipses within an accuracy of one hour. Also, the lower back dial of it could predict any eclipse that would take place in the future or has already taken place. So all future eclipses are, it could say, hey, any previous eclipses that have occurred. So this thing, I mean, I can't express enough that this thing was super accurate accurate and super detailed you know huh yep so our next strange fact and finding is about the famous marine explorer Jacques Cousteau so in 1976 shortly after the Princeton science historian published his findings about the Antikythera mechanism Jacques over here decided to go where it was found and dive that area to see if they could find any more stuff and for those of you who don't know who Jacques Cousteau was, he was a French naval officer, explorer, conservationist, filmmaker, scientist, photographer, author, and researcher who studied the sea in all forms of life and water. He was considered like the Steve Irwin of the water. Oh yeah, extremely famous diver. Like when I go diving, all I think about is I got to be like Jacques. I've heard his name multiple times and like I've seen it, never really know how to say it. Yeah, everybody's like, you're the modern day Jacques Cousteau. I'm like, no, I'm not. I just like snorkeling. I'm nothing like him. I'm not an explorer. <laughs> Anyways, continue. Sorry. You're exploring Maine, looking for them great whites. 
Anyway, so Jock ended up finding a few coins from the first century BCE, you know, before Christ, and get this, he actually found a few small bronze pieces of the mechanism that was left there. Yeah. Can you imagine what else is there? I want to go dive there. Let's go there, Dan. Actually, I kind of, I'm kind of scared of that water. Like, I would rather just stay along the coastline. I don't want to go way, way out. But wasn't this close to the coast? Well, coast of the island itself of Antikythera. But that Antikythera is pretty far ways away from the actual coastline. I mean, I'm already weary of this stuff. The fact that all of this stuff was found in this one spot and there's no shipwreck. Well, supposedly there was a shipwreck there. As of right now, there wasn't, but supposedly there was a shipwreck. And we have some theories as to the wreck itself and how this stuff was found and why it was there and how it got there. But we'll save that for theories. Right. So let's go on to our last strange fact and finding. And Dan, do you want to tell us about that one? So our next strange fact and finding is about the time period that this device was from. Now, all the carbon dating is saying that it is from around the early BC era. So around this time period, the famous Roman Marcus Cicero had mentioned in his writings of a mechanical planetarium called, and I quote, a sphere of Archimedes. That demonstrated how the sun, moon, and planets moved with respect to the Earth. Now, to add to this, an astrophysicist at Athens University stated that the mechanism came from a crashed boat that was headed to Rome as part of a parade for the Emperor Julius Caesar, and it was carrying all of the trophies to present to him. However, because of the rocky area of Antikythera Island, the ship hit something and then capsized. Yeah, so that's the kind of like belief of where all of these artifacts came from, that uh, there was a parade happening for Caesar, a ship was carrying all these trophies to present to him, hit some of those rocks, because remember how we said it had rocks? Uh, it was a rocky area around the Antikythera Island. Yeah, big boulders and stuff in the water and all that stuff. Yeah, it hit one of those rocks and then sank, which makes sense. I mean, yeah, that does make a little sense. Yeah. Which, I mean, that, of course, is just, I mean, it's not really a strange fact of finding. Well, kind of is, but it's also kind of like a theory. Yeah. Which kind of rolls us into our theory section. And we have a lot of good theories. But real quick, we're going to take our last break. Don't go anywhere. It's only 60 seconds. It's our last one. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. So let's hop right into theories. Dan, do you want to tell us about the first theory that we have? Of course. So the first theory that we're going to talk about is not what the device is, but actually theorize a little bit as to why no other devices like this one have been found before. So the most obvious theory as to why no other devices like this have been discovered is, is because bronze was rare and valuable and it was often used to make coins. Because of that, devices that contained bronze were taken apart, melted down, and recycled. Most bronze artifacts from the early BC period have only been found underwater where they had been safe from the hands of individuals who would have melted them down to sell them. So this brings up the theory that maybe there were devices like this back then, but they were all recycled and melted down. But if they think that, there's got to be more somewhere. Yeah. If I was like a government, I would start funding a project 
to go where that island is at and explore and dive and try to recover any artifacts that are around that island. Yeah. But I don't know. I guess they're not into that. You got to fund the military. Space military. Anyways, tell us about this next theory as to why no other device like this has been found. Our next theory as to why there are no other devices like this is because maybe this device was of one of a kind. That either a genius made it or maybe even an extraterrestrial made a device and gave it to the humans back then to help them better understand math, planets, and space. Can you imagine an alien coming down and giving it to them back then and saying, what the hell is this shoebox? Because that's how big it is. The device was about the size of a shoebox. Saying, what the hell is this? It spins. We don't know what to do with this. It looks fancy. And you have our language on the side of it. I mean, the only way I could really see that one being plausible is if an alien came down and was just like, you know what? I'm going to make you something that could be helpful to you. And then they go around collecting the parts there. Yeah. I don't know why, but I, don't, I just don't feel like you'll find much wood in space. Yeah, you're, you're right. Aliens came down, gathered some wood, some bronze materials from that time period made that for the people there and then left or maybe hey an alien had crashed from space or like i say the aliens are from our oceans they came up out of the ocean traveled around a little bit saw the people said hey i'm gonna make you this made it for them and then went back underwater into their uh little underground bubble or whatever's down there i don't know what's down there yeah maybe they were trading for something what would they be bartering for what does the greeks have humans Possibly humans. We need some humans down here. Dinosaurs. Just kidding. Okay, let's say that the aliens, that they do live in the ocean. Do you think that they live in like a giant spaceship from space? That that's originally where they came from? They said, hey, our spaceship, our mother spaceship, it's not safe rotating around this earth. Let's just go into their ocean and stay at the bottom of it to stay safe from the X-ray radiation and other things. And then whenever this earth gets destroyed, we just bloop, take our ship out of the ocean floor, fly it up in the outer space, and then go to some other planet that has an ocean. And then every now and then we'll come out in our little mini UFOs and gather what we need from that planet and then come back down. Honestly, I, I feel like it'd be um, kind of like off the movie Atlantis. I've never seen it. Well, not, not called Atlantis, but uh, Aquaman. There it is. The way their city is. They go in there and it's like, kind of like its own little area. Oh, so kind of like on the Star Wars, what was it, episode two or three, Jar Jar Binks gets taken into that place. Yeah, kind of like that. I like this. I like this conversation. And I felt like when I stated something about like a spaceship coming out and then, you know, leaving to find another planet to be its host, I felt like I stated something illegal and that the uh, men in black are about to bust through my door while I record. Well, that would explain the guy behind you right now. There's nobody behind me. Don't scare me like but that. Yeah, you looked. <laughs> All right, so let's, go, so let's go on to our next theory. All right, so our next theory revolves around time travel. So if the Antikythera mechanism dates to the 2nd century BCE and comparable technology didn't begin appearing until thousands of years later, then its existence may be proof of time travel. Maybe whoever invented it was a time traveler from the future, or perhaps it's actually a futuristic device that was brought back to ancient Greece and left there on purpose as proof of time travel. Or maybe a time traveler 
went back to ancient Greece, was just looking around, right, exploring, saying, hey, I want to blend in. And then he gets caught up in some shenanigans and he's like, I don't want to get killed. I got to make something for them to give to the Caesar. So he ends up making this crazy device that only he would have the knowledge to make. Okay. Because if you have to think, if you're a time traveler, you might have understanding of solar and lunar eclipses, how the planets work, everything to that nature. Then he would actually know what color the moon and all that would be during those eclipses because scientists yes. say they, it's impossible to know, which this device supposedly knows. Yep. I mean, yeah. It's a good theory to think about. If he was a time traveler and he came back in time and he brought bronze and wood, it's like... What a shitty tra time traveler, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you think you could bring like some carbo nanotechnology? Yeah, something at least rust resistant that could survive in water, salt water. <laughs> Doesn't break easily. What a dick. Oh, let me use this wood right here. It's going to be great. All right. So tell us about our next theory, Dan. All right. So the next theory is that the device came from aliens. So this theory states that beings with advanced knowledge of astronomical bodies, mathematics, and precision created the device or gave the knowledge for its creation to someone during the first century BC. But the knowledge was not recorded or wasn't passed down to anyone else. So aliens either gave humans this device or the knowledge to build it, but didn't do anything to ensure that we learned from or built upon it. So kind of like what we already talked about, aliens came down and gave it to us or either gave us the knowledge, which I don't think they gave us the knowledge if they did come down. I think they just came down, said, hey, watch what I can do, built this and then <laughs> yeeted up out of here. That kind of reminds me of a Black Knight satellite. Yeah. Hey, if you haven't listened to that episode, go listen to it. Black Knight satellite. It's a great episode. All right. So let's talk about our next theory, which is kind of similar to the one that we just talked about. But this one revolves solely around the fact that the Antikythera mechanism appears to be too technologically advanced for its time. Now, when you talk about Atlantis, right, it's supposedly a mythological, technologically advanced city that sunk into the sea. And we have previously done an episode over Atlantis. And if you haven't listened to that, go check it out. It's a great episode. But this Atlantis, like I said, Supposedly a very advanced city that sunk into the sea, but no one's been able to find any proof of it. So some people theorize that the Antikythera mechanism is proof that Atlantis was real. They think this device actually originated in Atlantis and not Greece because it was way too far advanced for any civilization at that time period, which it fits the bill. I mean, when you talk about the Atlantis theory. This honestly far exceeds their technology, I believe, especially with the little cogwheels and stuff. I'm still like amazed by that. I couldn't make that. You sent me butt ass naked, right, out somewhere and said, hey, make this or you die. Or they said, hey, you, you're going to be trapped out here with nothing until you make this device. I'd die. Oh, 100%. I would. I, I couldn't make it. I couldn't even make the bronze or marble statues. I could maybe make a spoon, maybe, but even then it would take a very long time. I mean, if they gave me YouTube, I could probably make something. <laughs> My God. <laughs> yeah. All right. So talk about our next theory, Dan. The next theory is that the Anunnaki left it on Earth. Now, the Anunnaki are a supposed race of ancient aliens who visited and lived on Earth. They were the gods in ancient Mesopotamia, leaving behind clues of their existence. 
in which some state that the Antikythera mechanism was one of the items that they left. Which, if you haven't heard the Anunnaki episode, you should definitely listen to that one. That one's actually a really good one. Oh yeah, that was a great episode that we did. And just like the Atlantis one, I think this one falls right in line in my belief. Now, I'm not stating that I, that I believe those two theories, but I would state that they're plausible. Yeah. If the Anunnaki was real, then yes, I could see this mechanism being attached to them. If Atlantis was real, yes, I could see that this mechanism was, would be attached to it, right? But do I personally believe? And I'll say that till personal thoughts and theories. We need to get a hold of Keanu Reeves. He could answer this for us because he's an Anunnaki. Yeah, he is an Anunnaki. The dude never uh, ages, just like Jay-Z. He never ages, and Nicolas Cage never ages. Paul Rudd never ages. I think they're either just a bunch of clones or like a bunch of um, Illuminati Anunnaki people. Nephilim. Nephilim, yeah. All right, so our last theory that we have is that this entire thing is a hoax, that the Antikythera mechanism is all a hoax and finding it is a hoax. Now, why do some people think that? Well, some have compared this device to the mechanism called the Turk, which if you don't know what the Turk was, it was a fake chess-playing robot that was built, supposedly built, in the 18th century. However, scientists looked into it and they said, eh, the Turk is fake, which that poses the question, if this thing is truly a hoax, why would all these scientists, why would the people who found it in the 1900s, why would everybody lie about the authenticity of the Antikythera mechanism? Which kind of brings up the theory, are they hiding something? And some speculate that it is a hoax in order to drive tourism to the area and museum to see all the new artifacts that they received or that they recovered. So they say, hey, we got all these marble, all these brass artifacts, these statues. We spent all this money on this recovery efforts. And then they noticed, shit, not many people are coming to see these artifacts, to see these statues. And we've spent all this money recovering all of it. What do we do? Well, hey, we can say that we found this device that supposedly is an ancient artifact that's unexplained. And you can only see it here at this museum. And it drives tourism up. Now, another theory I just thought about is what if this device is proof that back then we were way more advanced than what we were being told. History that has been taught to us in school is false. It is partially only true that they are hiding the fact that civilization back then was way more advanced, which poses the question, why would they hide that from us? Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. But that's just a last little theory to kind of like, kind of make you sit on and wonder. And if you got any ideas, you got any other theories that you think that this, uh, of what you may think this may be, or anything like that, you can always send us an email to Aaron at theoriesofthethirdkind.com. That's A-A-R-O-N at theoriesofthethirdkind.com. Or you can send an email to Dan, D-A-N at theoriesofthethirdkind.com. And we'd love to hear it. Oh, yeah. All right, Dan. So give me your personal thoughts and theories behind this entire device and what you think about it. 
All right. So I don't believe it's from a time traveler. I don't believe it's from aliens either. I do believe that some there was probably a genius back then that actually just figured the shit out. And, you know, he probably took the time because honestly, he probably took a long ass time making this device considering there's only one that's been found. And I think there's only one of them in existence like that. Well, they remade one, right? Well, yeah, they ended up after they got the x-rays and started uh, really looking into it. I think in 2005 or six, they ended up remaking one. So they have a replica of it. Now, this is all according to the inside inscriptions of the kind of like, quote unquote, user manual of the device. Yeah. So, I don't know. I feel like there was just a genius back there. He made this thing, which, I mean, I say I don't believe in the time traveler thing, but that does fit in very well, though, with knowing the eclipses. But just, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to fit totally with me. And honestly, with all of that dump there, I almost don't want to believe that it's a shipwreck. Maybe just like you were talking about lost civilization or something that was advanced. Maybe there was a civilization that lived on that island and it was advanced. Maybe they were trying to cover up that a civilization like that existed and they dumped all that shit. That's exactly what I'm thinking. It's like they collected all the stuff that could have been, you know, pointing to this civilization, dumped it into the water. And it wasn't meant to be found because honestly, no one would have thought of just to like go there and just look. They were just happen to be searching for sponges. They had to wait for the weather and they end up finding this stuff. Damn sponge diving all because of sponge diving. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you think maybe that they had a ship loaded up with all this stuff. I mean, could have. Because I did read that there was some evidence of a shipwreck there, but I didn't look too deep into that, I'll admit. I was more concentrated on the actual finding and um, the recovery effort. It could have been the civilization ships as well that they decided to sink as well. That could have been more advanced than theirs. Yeah, true. Maybe, uh, a religion back then thought that this was maybe witchcraft. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Hey, you have all these gods, these idols that you worship that are statues. Get rid of them. Yeah. I mean, regardless, whatever this thing, you know, whoever made it um, was a genius. I think it was made back then because you have to think, what did they have to do back then? Not much. You would go to the coliseums. You would watch people fight each other to the death. You would uh, just stay at home, farm. You would look into the sky, right? You would write poems. You would do shit like that. Uh, so it wasn't like they were staying on Xbox all day playing Fortnite or on TikTok, watching TikToks all day. They didn't have much to do. So I could see somebody that was just born with a genius mind and figured out how to make something like this. I mean, they were studying the stars and stuff back then. That's how they navigated the oceans. Oh, yeah. So this thing showed the planets and all that stuff. So what's to say that, you know, it wasn't created back then? Maybe this was a device to help them navigate the waters. What are your coordinates? I am six clicks to the left of the Saturn. <laughs> the solar eclipse is happening tomorrow. And the Olympics are happening 82 days from now. That blew my mind. It could tell you how far away the Olympics were back then. Really? Yes, they would have the Olympic uh, games or whatever back then. Oh, yeah. There was also a dial on there that told you how far away that was. And the Zodiac signs, too. Freaking nuts, man. Hey, maybe it was a time traveler. Who knew? Maybe. Regardless, this device is amazing. I'm going to try to order a replica if I could find one online. And, uh, you know, just have it sitting next to my uh, 
Aztec death whistle. I'm going to start a collection of relics. There you go. Yep. All right. Well, you got anything else more you want to add to today's episode? Yeah. Are we going to the island to go uh, diving? I'll tie a rock to your, uh, to your foot. You can dive down. Oh, man. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, we'll go there tomorrow. All right. But no, I don't got nothing else. Nothing else? All right. Well, I enjoyed this episode. It was a good one. I liked it. Yep. So now we're going to move to our on-the-scene uh, part of today's episode. Now, if you are unfamiliar with what our on-the-scene is, it is where a listener goes out onto the streets and interviews an unsuspecting person and asks them about certain conspiracies or theories and uh, gets the response. Now, anyone can do this. Yes, you, even the person listening to this right now. You can go out to the street and interview somebody on your phone, just record it on your phone, and send that audio file over to either one of our emails, which you can find on our website at theoriesofthirdkind.com. Click on contact, scroll down a little bit, and you can see our emails. And just email us the file and make sure the audio recording is less than two minutes long. So our On the Scene this week comes from Tony, and we're going to take a listen to that right now. This is Tony Bruno for Theories of the Third Kind, and with me today I have Augustine. Augustine, what are your thoughts on La Llorona? La Llorona? Do you think it's real? Uh, it, it could be a possibility, but it, you don't know because there's a lot of uh, audios out there that people make, and you can easily fool somebody that doesn't know about it. Hmm. So it's just... Um, Do you personally believe in it? I don't. Okay. Yeah. How I've, about... I've seen some interesting videos about it, but... But nothing for sure? Nothing for sure, yeah. How about the Chupacabra? The Chupacabra, it's almost... Uh, yeah. I believe more in the Chupacabra then, than on... Yeah, because uh, I've seen a couple videos, but it's not like what people think it is. It could be something in nature, like an animal or something like that, that... It's really hard to So you believe understand. in it, but maybe not the stereotypical one yeah, thing. how it looks and stuff like that, right. what people think it looks. I see. And then the last question. Aliens. Is there aliens out there? Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure? Like, for sure, for sure. Have you ever seen anything? Nah. Okay. But um, I think there is something out there that is not human. There has to be, right? Yes. It only makes sense. All right, Augustine, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Tony, for that good on the scene. Yes, thank you. And Augustine. Yes, thank you, Augustine, for allowing him to question you and your beliefs. I like it. I always like hearing, you know, people's opinions on what they believe and what they don't believe. I wish I could take a survey of everybody in the United States and see what they believe. If they believe in aliens, if they believe in chupacabra. Yayarona. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. La Yarona. Yarrona. Gotta roll my R's. La Yarona. Yarrona. But yeah, thank you again, Tony. We love you and we're proud of you. And again, anybody, if you want to submit your on the scene, just email it to either me and Dan or you can email it to both of us. Yeah. And just put in the subject line on the scene and yours will go into the queue to be played. Keep it around two minutes or less. All right, um, so that moves us on to our shout-outs for the week. So, Dan, do you want to start off the shout-outs? Yeah, I only have a few from Facebook. All right. So, first shout-out goes to Alicia 
Alicia S., then Anthony S., then a Robert from Johannesburg, South Africa, then Dustin W., then, oh, Keith H., and then a shout-out to Matthew Wayne McHenry. He wanted a full-name shout-out. So there you go, full-name shout-out. And that's all I have for Facebook. Oh, nice. Short and sweet. So for Instagram shout-outs, I want to shout-out Stephanie Stewart. I want to shout-out Sarah Miller, Melissa Lucero. I want to shout-out Wyatt69. He asked why I was banned on PayPal, or banned from PayPal, because I emailed the uh, CEO and told him to go f*** himself, and that will get you an automatic ban. And people say, oh, you can just sign up again. No, you can't. PayPal works with your social security number. So when I go and try to sign up, it's like you're banned. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I don't need PayPal anyways. PayPal can go f*** itself. Shout out to Candace K. Shout out to Sarah S., which is Night of the Living Sarah. Uh, shout out to Brandon, our bodyguard. Nice. Shout out to Jay Cutler, not the football player, but the bodybuilder. Uh, Jonathan Pike says, hope you become as big as Joe Rogan. Thank you, Jonathan Pike. Shout out to you. Um, Pedro V said, shout me out, mofos. My name's Pedro. I got my brother Jonathan. He doesn't say his name's Pedro, but I just assume his name's Pedro. Uh, I got my brother Jonathan hooked up on you guys' show. Bigfoot 2024. Well, thank you. Shout out to you. Love you. Shout out to Taylor, to Chad Higgins, to Pablo, to Morgan, to Saul M, to Monkey Tino, to Duke George Duchiness. I'm sure I pronounced your name wrong. I'm sorry. To Yogi, Yogi Rob. You're awesome. To Brandon Siegel, Nick Quintero, Kendall Evans, to John Lawrence, Kalani Cruz also known as KK, said it would love a shout-out. Where well, here you go. Thank you for the love. Sending it right back to Brandy Merritt, Mike Colt, and Lisa Moyer. And that's on our main Instagram. And I'm going to roll over to my personal Instagram. Um, want to shout-out Brian Quinn, Jake Fenrick, Jonathan Pike, Ness, Jamie Rodriguez, Glicky6, Joseph Terrarino, Yarold Juarez, Luis Aguilar, Eric, with a C and a K, Braden Siegel, Monkey Tino, Jacob Deandra, and Liana Lusso. Thank y'all. Love y'all. Proud of y'all. And that's my Instagram shoutouts. Dan, do you have any email or Discord shoutouts? Uh, actually, I haven't been on Discord much lately at all. I haven't either. Uh, been busy. Yeah. Really busy. Uh. Oh, I want to shout out Sean from Discord. He said, I hope you're successful in all that you do. You'll have my support. Nice. And that the podcast has made the uh, world much more tolerable and the pandemic much more tolerable. Well, thank you. I'm glad that we can show you, you know, some, uh, some you know, love during this tough time. So, yeah. All right. Um, so, I don't think I have any email shout outs. I think that's it for email uh, shout outs. I, I guess I got one right here. All right. This is from a... Kieran R., which I think, yeah, she sent it to you as well. It's about the Black Eyed Children episode. She's like, sorry it's late and the podcast is an old one. Just been listening to Black Eyed, to the Black Eyed one, to the Black Eyed Children podcast and view the references. She said, or they say they are from Staffordshire. Staffordshire, I guess that's how it said. And the drone video is part of the Canuck Chase, Canuck Chase, Canuck Chase, which she walks their dog over there frequently. Anyway, the main part of it that I, that intrigued me 
I don't think this is a black-eyed child. However, I do think it might be the ghost of Gaskin's wife. There's a story of a former soldier who came home and killed and dismembered his wife and buried her body parts over the chase. Jesus Christ! Yeah, people have supposedly seen her in a white gown wandering around. So, yeah. That's scary. Well, thank you for that email. I think I read that a couple days ago. And I was like, oh my God. I gotta yeah. look into that more. But I just haven't had time because we were deeply researching these topics this week. So, yeah, thank you for that email. Um, now, I do have one last shout out from my email. And this comes from Sarah Patterson. She sent me an email and said, uh, hey, I think you guys do a really good job. I like the fact that you always have very interesting and different topics. The Eratus episode seriously confused the shit out of me. It confused me. I had to like research it and read it over and over and over again. I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. Um, either way, it was definitely a great episode. So thank you for keeping me entertained while cleaning litter boxes. I have three asshole boys that I truly believe have contests while I'm at work to see who can shit the most and the biggest turd in the litter box. Initially, I thought she was talking about her kids. Like she had three boys who literally shit in the litter box. I was like, wait, what? And I was like, oh, her cats. Right. I'm dumb sometimes. Sorry. (laughs) Um, That's funny. She does have a 23-year-old son and they live in Florida. I'm looking forward to the stickers and would really love it if you could give a shout out to my son, Byron, from mom. So, Byron, me and Dan just want to say what's up. What's up? That we love you and that we're proud of you. Much love. Boom. All right. So, there you go. Thank you for the love, Sarah. Thank you for the love, Byron. And, uh, yeah, that's the end of our shout outs. Uh, we into free talk now? Yeah, we're into free talk. So, how's your weekend? Was you have a good weekend? It was a decent weekend. I... Went with uh, my niece to Old Williamsburg in Virginia, where they have like the outlets and some fancy restaurants and stuff. And we walked around there for six hours or so. Jeez. Did you buy anything? I bought me a, I found the Big Red there. I saw you send a picture of that. Yeah. Then I found the little baggie of Sinsu beans from Dragon Ball. Did you buy that? I did. Okay. Are they tasty? I haven't eaten them yet. I oh. kind of don't want to open them, but then again, I do want to try it. Okay. We'll, we'll see. And then I uh, bought me some uh, some shoes, some Sperry's. Oh, fancy. Fancy. Hey, they were, what, buy one, get one 70% off? Oh, that's pretty good. How much did the first one cost you, though? Like $800? 70 That's not bad, considering the in- inflation that's going on right now. I went to Walmart to go get some steaks to cook, because usually I just get Chuck Eyes, which, side note here, you can go get a chuck eye, and they're just like ribeye, except they're cheaper, like way cheaper. And uh, I went to go get some chuck eyes, and they were just as expensive as ribeyes. So I guess they figured that secret out, and they started pricing them up high, because all the meat now is f***ing expensive. It's ridiculous. Speaking of food prices going up, what is up with all these fast food restaurants increasing the prices of chicken nuggets? Like at Wendy's, you used to be able to get a four-piece for a dollar. Shit, Burger King had a thing where you could get it's either 10 or 20 nuggets for $1.49. And I'm like, man, they're losing money on that. I think it was 10 back then. Yeah, they're losing money on that. Yeah, well, prices on them now are gone up. Four pieces, $1.69. Like a 10 pieces, $5. Speaking of that, the price is going up. I was sitting at home this morning and I was like, I'm finishing up some reading. I don't really want to go anywhere. I don't feel like cooking anything. I think I'm just going to order some, you know, Uber Eats or something. So I download the Uber Eats app. Oh my God. 
they charge a $15 to $16.99 delivery fee. I'm not ordering anything. I don't use Uber Eats because they don't deliver out to my house. Oh. Well, I didn't order anything. I just starved. Actually, I had a, a um, what the hell was it? One of those Cliff Bars, peanut butter Cliff Bars. I didn't have anything to eat until like 4 o'clock today. Damn. Look at you. Overachiever. Nah, I, I'm a little under the weather. You got the corona? Nope, I can still taste everything. I just have like a little cough. That's the start. My nephew came over the other day. He had, um, actually it was like yesterday he came over. He had a sore throat, cough, sneezing, watery eyes, not feeling well. I said, uh, you sick? He goes, no, 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 I just got allergies. I said, you can go ahead and leave. <laughs> you can go ahead and leave. I'm like, don't even come up the stairs. Go ahead and walk, turn around, walk right out. So my niece did test positive for Corona. And I was, went out to dinner with the, my sister's family uh, Wednesday night. And she was there. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, five, six. It's a five to seven day period. Other than like a slight cough, I am fatigued. But other than that, I, I'm fine. I don't have a headache. Well, hopefully you get better. I can't do next week's episode without you. It's a one-man show now. <clears throat> no, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. I can't do episodes without you. No, I think I'm all right. Well, I guess we'll have to just wait and see. Everybody send their good energy to Dan. Make sure he heals up well. I'm going to go get one of those uh, anal-tested uh, COVID things. They're the most accurate. Yeah. They're the most accurate. I need a nurse now. Okay, well, that's the end of the episode today. So I want to thank you all for joining us today. And again, thank you for your support. You are amazing, every single one of you. So with that being said, Dan, you want to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you are not alone. <laughs>